I think a, a very important question to be asking alongside this though, is what can this information be used to learn about you as an individual? And that's where some of the concerns about app data are, um, you know, I, I'm gonna argue are, have been made larger than they probably are. And that's because if we think about information from your phone or information that you've entered into apps being used to aid in prosecution of anything related to pregnancy, information about period or menstrual cycles is going to be far less useful than a lot of the other information in your phone. Lots of questions about menstrual tracking or cycle tracking apps popped up after the U.S. Supreme Court struck down the constitutional right to an abortion in June 2022. Questions like, are these apps secure? Could data tracked in these apps be used to criminalize people who seek abortion care? Should people be concerned about using cycle tracking apps? Dr. Jenna Nobles joined the Women's Health Cast to talk about why people may be interested in using cycle tracking apps, how they work, common concerns around data security and safety, and how to evaluate whether using a cycle tracking app is the right choice for you. Dr. Nobles is a professor of sociology and director of the Center for Demography and Ecology at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. From the University of Wisconsin-Madison Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology, I'm Jackie Askins, and you're listening to the Women's Health Cast. I am very excited to be joined today on the Women's Health Cast by Dr. Jenna Nobles, who is a professor of sociology and director of the Center for Demography and Ecology at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Thank you for being with me today to talk about data security, privacy, and menstrual cycle tracking apps. Jackie, thanks so much for having me. I would love to learn a little bit more about your like research areas and areas of expertise. Um, tell me a little bit about what you work on. I am a demographer, so I study population change, and I am interested in how people's health, their fecundity, their decisions about fertility, their decisions about how many kids to have, when to have them, where to live, you know, some migration decisions, who to partner with, how individual behavior is affected by things like uh, social and economic policy, and how individual behavior aggregates up to create population dynamics. So population level fertility, flows of migration, the aging of the population. And so uh, as, as demographers, we tackle many, many things, um, but a key piece of that is how individual decisions aggregate up to become population level phenomena. In the weeks following the U.S. Supreme Court's decision um, in Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization, which overturned the constitutionally protected right to abortion, um, I have seen a lot of articles and discussions about these pro products or programs called like menstrual tracking apps or cycle tracking apps and kind of the intersection of using those with um, individual privacy and data security. I really wanted to get some expert thoughts or input on um, what it's like to use these apps, some of the questions and concerns people might have around them. And I thought of you because I know you recently published a study that used data from one of these apps to kind of demonstrate how like cycle irregularity, menstrual cycle irregularity can affect how soon someone recognizes a pregnancy. And I thought that study was incredibly interesting. Um, and it kind of felt like maybe you would be a good expert to give us a little insight on how these apps work and why people use them and what some questions people might have about them. 
Absolutely. I'm, I'm happy to talk about this. Uh, menstrual cycle tracking has become a very commonly used feature of people's smartphones. Um, and, and, you know, menstrual cycle tracking, of course, predates smartphones by <laughs> decades, centuries. Um, and uh, now, though, it is possible to track your cycle relatively easy in a way that has a low user burden. And it allows people to learn many, many things about themselves, right? It's not only uh, do I have periods? When do my periods come? But it's also all of the things that accompany the menstrual cycle that for a long time were not part of a standard you know, health provision or the way we think about you know, what's provided in Apple Health, for example. But you know, menstru menstruation is obviously very common in the population and it's connected to a whole bunch of other systems in the body that affect health. So it you know, is associated with things like um, migraines, with uh, emotional regulation, um, with physical pain, um, and, and people who have irregular cycles, which is very common, um, may have other conditions that also create other sorts of health complications. And so, you know, tracking for some people means so much more um, than just either the irritation of getting periods unexpectedly, uh, or, um, you know, when somebody is likely to uh, be ovulating and uh, susceptible to pregnancy. And so, you know, so I can, I can talk a lot about this. Um, from a research standpoint, menstrual cycle tracking apps have been enormously important to learn about all of these health issues. And that's largely because we have no population representative prospectively recorded uh, menstrual cycle data in the US, right? There are um, a number of, of smaller scale studies or clinical cohort studies, uh, but th this is fascinating, something so common. We don't have you know, a standard large scale prospective cohort that is population representative to do this. And so cycle tracking has provided a new window into a very important part of population health uh, for for biomedical researchers and and for people like me for population health researchers uh, who think about things like population fecundity you mentioned a couple reasons why people might track their cycles in general but i'm curious if you have a sense of um, what kinds of information can come from tracking what kind of why people might choose to track a cycle in addition to like not being surprised or knowing when to expect a menstrual period to start, like what are some of the other things we can learn from um, tracking cycles in general? Absolutely. So some people do this uh, very much to learn about when uh, they might be ovulating and when, you know, pregnancy is possible. Um, other people track symptoms alongside the tracking of their cycles. So things like, um, uh, breast soreness or uh, headache or back pain. Um, and for those people that can provide a window into you know, what's going on with other aspects of their body and also when to expect challenges related to you know health and welfare. Um, other people use it to, to pay attention to things like depression and anxiety. And uh, that kind of tracking has, has been my understanding is is very useful to some people. Um, so, you know, when I talk to people about why they use these apps, it really it is a wide variety. Um, some people are actively trying to get pregnant. Some people are actively trying to not get pregnant. Um, and some people are trying to, you know, use them for all of these other dimensions. You mentioned that um, 
you know, cycle tracking is an incredibly old process. It's not um, new to the advent of smartphones or apps. So what, I guess, makes the using an app experience a little bit different? Or why would people want to use like a, a computer program or an app? I'm going to end up saying app 30 million times. But um, what might inspire someone to use a program like that um, instead of maybe like paper tracking or a more analog way of keeping track of cycles? Well, a couple of different reasons. You know, one is that it's a very low burden on the user, right? This is something you can just enter in while you're on a bus or, you know, waiting at it for some, at the post office or something like this. And it, and it can be recorded fairly easy, a couple of touches into an app. And then the data can, in many of these apps, provide the user with um, description of the data as well as a prediction about uh, here is when we expect your next cycle to be based on your past patterns. Here is when we might expect you to have some symptoms that, that you reported systematically. And you know, for some people, using these reveals things uh, that may have been, you know, you can record this on on paper and you can look backwards in time and try to make sense of the data. The analysis and prediction capacity is, uh, I think, a strength in addition to the low user burden. And so basically the program hands back to you information about yourself that, that people may find useful. And so sometimes where things may have seemed unpredictable and riddled with uncertainty, there are actually very systematic patterns and that, that can be useful information for, for people. Um, the other piece about it is that in some ways it can be more and it's interesting, we're talking about privacy, it can be more private from a who's in your household, who's in your office. You know, there isn't a paper record that's sitting around or sitting next to your one's bed or something like this, right? Um, to the extent that what information that's in a phone is somehow password protected or, um, you know, bioinformatic protected from other pe people and people's families and people's offices, et cetera, et cetera then it is a little bit more private as well. well. I wanted to ask a little bit about the the privacy aspect because totally in the in the sense that um, you know I carry it around now in my phone and I have a passcode so no one could stumble upon um, like my tracking information it's not just hanging out in a paper calendar somewhere very visible I don't have to develop a special code um, to try and keep it like subtle or anything. And on the flip side, then, where does my data live? Like, I I don't know for sure. Um, you know, does it live just on my device or uh, is it cloud stored? Uh, I guess kind of what happens to the information that we put into these apps and then who has access to it in, in that regard when it's digitally stored? Yes, great question. So this, of course, varies by app. And some apps do allow for local storage of your information. It literally lives on your phone. Most apps, certainly the large scale apps um, that are, are commonly downloaded from the App Store um, and, and highly ranked in the App Store are stored in a cloud. Tremendous, you know, huge amounts of information. Who this information is available to is also app specific. Um, most places, particularly in light of more recent concerns about data privacy have FAQs um, on their web pages about their apps, about 
you know, when is app data available, who can use it. Um, most places have, you know, but again, one should always check. Most places have reasonable privacy protections um, in that, uh, you know, apps are, are information is either provided to advertisers or not. Um, but if it is, it's almost always provided in the aggregate with, with aggregated information. Um, but, but again, you know, one has to, ch to check these things. I think a, a very important question to be asking alongside this, though, is what can this information be used to learn about you as an individual? And that's where some of the concerns about app data are, um, you know, I, I'm going to argue are, have been made larger than they probably are. And that's because if we think about information from your phone or information that you've entered into apps being used to aid in prosecution of anything related to pregnancy, information about period or menstrual cycles is going to be far less useful than a lot of the other information in your phone. And so, um, you know, communication with people by te via text, location information, uh, that's potentially far more useful in the context of context of, of prosecution or around, around pregnancy that people are very concerned about for, for good reason. And in, instead, you know, what's information there about your menstrual cycles can be informative about pregnancy, but honestly, from my own research, something that we've learned a, a lot about this is that um, Spontaneous miscarriage is extremely common, right? And because of this, it's actually fairly difficult to learn anything about elective pregnancy termination from menstrual cycle patterns. The other thing I'll say is that without very specific kinds of information, it's actually fairly difficult to use data and attach it to an individual. Uh, you know, so many of these devices or apps ask for your first name and then information about menstrual cycle, but without something like your exact date of birth, so not just age, but your exact date of birth, your exact location, and the date of birth of your child, uh, you know, with that information, one can back out with some probability who an individual is. Um, but absent that information, things about your menstrual cycle, even things about sex, things about all, you know, all these other things you enter in, even things about your insurer, uh, make it harder to identify you as an individual. So that was actually a question I had, is how, how easy it would be for someone to be individually identified by their data. And I know a couple of the bigger apps in recent weeks have also introduced things like privacy mode, where you can kind of use the app without providing any identifying information about yourself and use local storage only. So feels like some of those concerns are, are working on being addressed, but, um, but it sounds like it is not, not a simple thing necessarily to drill down through a big aggregate set of data to get into one individual person and then connect that little like stream of data in the app to an actual human person in the real world. Is, yes. No, am I exactly. That right? Exactly. So you can imagine all the other kinds of information you use in apps that you use apps for and, um, and 
those informations have your address, you know, like, are you going to deliver food to this type? There's a bunch of other kinds of ways that we interact with phones that have a lot more personal identifying information. Now, if a company has one's email address, and that's linked to like a very specific email address, for example, but the kind of data that a company is providing to, for example, an advertiser or this information would not have an IP address, it would not have an email address on it. And then the data that are out there are data that are actually fairly difficult to link to an individual because things, so what you need to do to identify somebody in, in a, with an external database is you need to be able to line up administrative data that are already exists and are already public with information from an app, right? And information that are in these kinds of apps, your menstrual cycles, when you're having sex, uh, cervical fluid consistency. Um, this information doesn't exist in other databases. And because of that, it is, it is difficult to merge on information to uniquely identify you as an individual. If you enter in the exact date of birth of yourself and your child and your zip code, uh, it then, then all of those pieces together uh, can make it more easy to identify you, but that's because an administrative database exists with exact birth dates of individuals and exact birth dates of their children. And then within the context of certain locations that could be narrowed down. So I, there's a lot of things we've just covered here. A couple of key ideas, you know, so one, what you enter into your phone is more easily identify, easy to identify you in the context of other kinds of phone interactions you have. Two, that if law enforcement is interested in seeking data related to uh, abortion, your period tracker is going to be among the least informative pieces of information they could extract from your phone. Three, though, that being said, we have the capacity to learn about how our data is being used and it's, it's a great idea to do so. And so you can check the FAQs uh, of, um, of these kinds of apps. You can um, think about whether or not you're entering in, you know, a primary email address or a burner email address. Uh, and you can think about adding noise, for example, to, to an exact birth date and or just entering in age. So, there are ways to use these things and you can request the data be stored locally. You can delete data after some past period of time. Um, many of the apps have, have these kinds of options. So there are, there are lots of options here. Um, if period tracking is something that is useful for learning and supporting your own health, there are lots of ways to do it that are not high risk with respect to law enforcement. Can you tell me a little bit more about some of the other options? So if we do still want to keep track of cycle information, but have concerns about like that aspect of data safety, um, what are some of the options available still? Yeah, so you can find apps, for example, that um, do store the data only locally. And, and that's an option. You can also, um, you know, provide detailed information about your your periods, your sexual frequency, your cervical fluid, your um, all of these things that are not the kind of information that exist in other 
databases, right? So if you just avoid providing information like the kind I talked about before, then that is an easy way to make things um, less identifiable. Uh, But you can also uh, delete data after some period of time. So, I mean, I think the key thing is, is there are several ways to use these apps that are reasonably safe. If one is worried about privacy in the context of pregnancy safety and and pregnancy health and reproductive health care access, it might be more important to pay attention to other ways that people engage with uh, their phones, right? So that's just to say that this this is one piece of a bevy of information that um, that we that we leave behind. Uh, digi- digital exhaust. I have not heard that term before, but I like it. Um, in that sort of bevy of digital exhaust, you mentioned you uh, mentioned location services. So that is like the the way our phones kind of know where we are in space and in places, um, and so there are ways to turn that off sometimes if that is important to you. Um, Texts and communication and then also search terms, I think, are something to be aware of. So depending what search engine someone might use and what kinds of terms they're searching, some of that information can also be uh, cached and it's good to know about that too. Yes, and at UW-Madison, we are lucky to have real experts in data privacy and and data security. So Dorothea Salo, for example, in our data science, uh, the data science community on campus, um, is somebody that one could look to to speak on this as well. So we've just talked a lot about individual thoughts and concerns about, you know, using tracking apps like this. But earlier in our conversation, you also mentioned, you know, in terms of research and sort of a a broader pool of information, that there's a lot that can be learned from information that's tracked in cycle tracking apps. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Absolutely. So because we have such so few large scale prospective studies of um, either people's pathway to pregnancy, so people trying to get pregnant, like the large scale preconception cohort is what we'd call a group of people who are trying to get pregnant and are followed from the time they start trying to get pregnant until they get pregnant and then what happens to those pregnancies. Um, That's a window that really doesn't exist in very many large scale data resources, right? That information isn't in electronic health records. It's not because, you know, all of this is the preclinical phase of of pregnancy and the pre-pregnancy period. A window into that would be prohibitive to scale at the population level, right? I mean, you can imagine how much money it would cost to recruit a preconception cohort, test regularly for pregnancy, um, and and follow people forward. And there are some great examples of people attempting to do this, for example, the Presto study at, at BU. But this has been um, a real limit to what we know about things like menstrual cycles. And, you know, as I mentioned earlier, Menstrual health is an absolutely key part of people's well-being for a huge part of our population. And so even research, research on things like um, PCOS or endometriosis, these are important conditions that affect a lot of people. And the kinds of experiences that people have are hard to study in large-scale 
population search. Similarly, what my team uses this information for is to study miscarriage and how common miscarriage is. And so we've learned a lot about the fact that it is extremely common, that it is sensitive to social exposures. And so, you know, so much of what we talk about in the context of research around miscarriage is about the person carrying the pregnancy and what they do and what they consume. That stems from how we collect data about the early pregnancy period. And so when we collect really small studies of a few, pe few people in a clinical cohort, all we can speak to is, is the correlates that arise with people's behavior or their consumption. When you're able to scale something up to the population level, you learn a lot more about the fact that miscarriage is also associated with the kinds of things that people are exposed to. And so there are many things that we can draw from that, or there are many important implications of that, but one of them is that miscarriage is not just an individual level phenomenon, right? And so um, it's also the case that we can learn things about uh, periods and pregnancy that have implications for how we structure reproductive health policy. And an example of that is, is the kind of work that we had done earlier um, uh, that talked about who is able to learn about pregnancies early enough to be able to access abortion under so-called six-week bans. And this is the kind of information that's also relevant to reproductive health policy that is really only possible in the context of using uh, aggregate data that is found in the back end of apps. I will say, and this is very important, to emphasize that when researchers partner with companies to study these things, you know, it, you have to go through an IRB and there are additional protections. You know, anything funded by NIH is also protected by a certificate of confidentiality. And so um, there are additional protections in the research process. The data we get is um, has been stripped of identifying information. We've also introduced um, noise and clustering of data before it comes to us so that no one, so that for, you know, for some reason, the extreme security protocol around the data storage management and analysis were somehow violated, still no one could be, the data couldn't be linked to any individual because we've removed the capacity of doing that in, in the way the data are structured. So there's a lot of security precautions in place in, in the research context. Um, going back to the individual, of course, this does not in any way suggest that one should relinquish important data protections for the context of you know the well-being of research. This is just to say that a feature of these apps is that it has given us a window into health and well-being for for parts of the population that have been largely uh, uh, not in clinical research. And you know so we can learn about inequality, we can learn about um, uh, populations that have largely been excluded from clinical research and and we can learn about the health of uh, reproductive conditions that have, for some reason, not made it into mainstream health research as much as we might hope they would be. Dr. Nobles, I want to thank you so much for spending this time with me. As we wrap up, I am wondering if you can share a couple key takeaways of, um, you know, what people who might be interested in using apps like this should know about, you know, the why to use them or the value of using them, um, concerns and questions about privacy, how a couple maybe key tips of how to evaluate whether 
an app or program like this might be a good fit for us and anything else you think is important to know about the broader world of cycle tracking and menstrual tracking apps. Yeah, absolutely. So one, cycle tracking can be really helpful to individuals. And there's a a way in which we don't want these threats to preclude having important and and useful information about our bodies and our health and the ability to predict information about ourselves and the things that we need, right? So at this point, I don't see a reason to abandon cycle tracking at all. Instead, I think a key thing is to, to know how data are being used to select apps that use data in a way that one is comfortable with, and then to provide information to those apps in a way that, that one is comfortable with, and specifically um, information that cannot be merged with other administrative databases, right? So information about periods, cervical fluid, sexual activity, like this information doesn't exist anywhere else. It's fairly safe to use. Um, There are many cycle tracking apps out there. It is possible to check out their websites, check out their FAQs. It's possible to select how one interacts with them in a way that increases privacy. Uh, And then finally, I would say in the context of thinking about privacy around reproductive health and reproductive health choices, there are probably other ways that we interact with our phones that are um, of more concern. Um, The final piece I'll say is that anyone who is seeking to use these data in this context, I would argue that my own research is indicative of the fact that spontaneous miscarriage is extremely common and it would be very difficult to differentiate a spontaneous miscarriage from an elective termination uh, from these data. And therefore, um, I I would argue to somebody considering using these data for those purposes that uh, that they're not going to find the the signal among the noise they might be looking for. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining me today. This was a real pleasure. Uh, It was wonderful to talk with you, Jackie. I I really appreciate it. And uh, good luck to everyone out there who's listening. The Women's HealthCast is a production of the UW-Madison Department of OBGYN. This episode was produced and engineered by Rob Garza. You can find the Women's HealthCast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at WISCOBGYN. Let us know how we're doing, rate and review us in your podcast app, and let us know what health issues you'd like to learn about at the link on our podcast page. Thanks for listening.